The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon, not afternoon, almost, uh, this morning, are found in Acts chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, Acts chapter 10. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he'd explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for which you would come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew, to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. 
So I asked, for what reason you've sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send a job and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism with John, which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Please pray with me before we look at this word. Father, we want understanding. We want to grow. We want to deepen in our convictions. And we confess that we are weak. We're not as spiritually strong as we want to be. We're easily swayed. Easily alert, falling into temptation far more often than we like. And Lord, we know we need to grow in our, our grasp of truth. We need to deepen in our convictions. And so I pray that you would minister to each soul here and encourage them through this message revealed to us in Acts chapter 10. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever received a message from someone that you found uh, was utterly life-changing. Maybe it was bad news, such as that you were going to be laid off, losing your job, or even that your parent has just passed away, or that somebody you love had cancer. Or maybe it was good news, something like the, the, you applied to the, a prestigious university. You never thought you'd get in, but you received an acceptance letter. Or a newspaper or publisher has agreed to publish something you'd written. 
Or maybe it was just simply your, your friend informs you that the girl that you've had a crush on for years, he just found out that she likes you too. And that becomes life-changing. Many of us have received news, positive or negative, that from that point on, our life takes a different trajectory. And nothing, I would say, in all of history compares, though, to the shocking magnitude of the message that Peter receives here in Acts chapter 10. Uh, if, if all those other news examples I gave uh, were like a, a 7.8 on the Richter scale, the message that Peter receives here is like a 20 on the Richter scale. It is utterly shocking. In fact, it would be hard to believe had it not been clearly revealed to us in God's word. And there are four simple parts of the story that reveal this shocking message. Uh, an angel appears to a devout Gentile. Then God reveals a vision to Peter that's shocking to him. And then an angel instructs Peter to actually go to that, to a Gentile, and reveal this message. And then he reveals the message to the Gentiles that are there. So let's just dive right in to that first point in the narrative. Beginning in verse 1, an angel appears to a devout Gentile named Cornelius. It says he's a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort and a devout man who feared God with all his household. The fact that he's identified as a centurion tells us that he was an elite soldier. Uh, centurions were the most experienced and the best soldiers of the Roman army. Uh, they received their position based upon their combat skills and their uh, great leadership. He was the modern equivalent of a special forces non-commissioned officer. And so he was not only a great soldier and leader, but he was in charge of a particularly skilled group of soldiers in the greatest army of the world at that time. It's called the Italian cohort, and it was stationed uh, in this region, we know from ancient documents, uh, during this time period of the first century. A cohort uh, was a military unit of about 600 soldiers, which was one-tenth of a legion. And so, so Cornelius was a very significant individual. But not only was he significant to the Romans, he was a devout follower of Yahweh. Now we see that because he's specifically called a devout man. And Luke actually demonstrates three ways his devotion is seen. First, he is one who fears God. And not just he himself, but so much so that this had an impact on his entire household. So he had an influence. He so loved the Lord that even his Gentile household, those who had grown up in probably reasonably well circumstances, also had forsaken the Roman gods and followed Yahweh. Though Gentiles. Secondly, his devotion is also seen in that he gave many alms. So uh, he was generous and kind, uh, particularly to the weak and needy. And he also, it says, prayed to God continually. So he, again, what's, what's remarkable is he is, he is as devout as any Jew that we've come across in the New Testament, except for maybe Christ. And though he's a Gentile, it's stunning. And it's worthwhile to point out that God works in both Peter and this Gentile in order to communicate this important message 
that he gives to Peter. So although he speaks directly to Peter in a vision, he also chooses to communicate directly to this Gentile through an angel. Which is not what we would expect. I mean, it would have been sufficient for God just to communicate to Peter. After all, he is an apostle, the leader of the apostles. But he goes out of his way to bring to include this Gentile in this message. And this inclusion actually demonstrates the reality of the message that actually is being revealed. That the full measure of grace is given not just to the Jews, but also to Gentiles who trust in it. But of course, Cornelius doesn't get the fullness of this message. All he reveals is revealed to him at first is that he needs to find Simon Peter who has a message to him. And so he says, your prayers, this angel says, your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so go and get Peter and you'll hear this message. And that brings us to the second part. God reveals a shocking message to Peter in verse 9. So in the section, second part of the story, this camera zooms from, P, from Cornelius and Joppa about 30 miles away to Peter, who is in uh, Joppa. Cornelius is in Caesarea. Peter's in Joppa. And Peter is going up on the housetop. Click, click, click. And not to deliver presents to little boys and girls, but something even better. He's praying. And while he is praying, he begins to get hungry. Now, this is heaven-sent hunger. God is causing him to be hungry because he wants to make a point to Peter. And in his hunger, God presents before Peter all sorts of animals that the Jews were forbidden to eat by Levitical law. We have the list of these animals in Leviticus chapter 11. And in verse 12, it says, all kinds of four-footed animals were here. So this certainly would have included pigs. Who knows? Maybe even God included the smell of sizzling bacon just to emphasize the point to him a little bit. We know he's already hungry. Lobster, also as a crawling thing, might have been included. But despite being told to kill and eat, Peter remains resolute in his conviction. He says, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So although he, he's told to eat, he's resolute. He resists the bacon, the lobster, the ostrich eggs, maybe. And yet, he receives this shocking message in verse 15. A second time, the voice comes to him and says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happens three times, and then the object is taken up into the sky. As many of you know, um, one of my favorite pastors was John Newton. And uh, he's known for writing many hymns. Uh, in fact, most of the hymns he wrote were actually meant to correspond with uh, the sermons that he would give. And so as I was studying this passage, I thought I'd try this with at least one line. Up on the housetop, Peter prayed, then received a vision of a pig to fillet. I stopped there, gave it up, but some of you can take it and run with it. 
Peter received this vision three times to reinforce the point that he wasn't imagining things. And the the weight of this is God wants to make give assurance that yes, Peter understood him correctly. God was reversing this ancient policy on unclean foods. And why is the question? Why would God do this? The short and simple answer is that Jesus died and rose again. <laughs> but more, I think, would be helpful. The reason, the reason for the majority of the Levitical laws, particularly regarding the clean and unclean foods, was because God wanted his people to remain separate from the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have God's revelation. They didn't have any means by which they could approach God. That there was no sacrificial system that God had established for them. God was only revealing himself to the Jews at this time. And if the Gentiles wanted to come to him, they had to come, in a sense, through the Jews. And God didn't want these dirty, immoral, unclean Gentiles, spiritually dirty is what I mean, who didn't possess the law or divine revelation to have an ungodly influence on his people. And so he created these laws to... to make a distinction, to emphasize they needed to remain separate from the world, from uh, bad people. In Isaiah 52.11, it says, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, declares the Lord. Just like we don't want our kids to hang out with bad peers, because they'll have an influence on them negatively. So God established these regulations of clean and unclean to teach the people about holiness. And the food laws just reinforce this principle. Now, the Bible doesn't explain what it was about these animals or things that particularly made them unclean. In fact, we know there's nothing inherently evil about the unclean animals. And we know that particularly because of what God reveals to Peter in this chapter. Because what was once unclean is now automatically clean. All these animals are clean. And it's because Gentiles have been cleansed also through the blood of Christ. Like, that's the point that, that God is trying to emphasize to Peter, if the foods are unclean, the reason for those unclean foods no longer exists because the Gentiles have also been made clean if they have faith in Christ. But this isn't clear to Peter yet, but it will be. And that moves us to verse 17, this third part, where the angel instructs Peter to go to the devout Gentile. So just after Peter hears three times that God has made these animals unclean, Three unclean Gentiles come knocking at his door. And Peter knows that this is not a coincidence. In fact, he knows this because the Spirit directly tells him that he sent these men to him. He says, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now, again, this is being specifically told to Peter because Peter wouldn't naturally go to these Gentiles' home. He might welcome them into his home where he could kind of control things. But in going to a Gentile's home, he might not know what is clean or unclean. But because the Spirit himself tells him to go, and because of the vision he just received, he agrees to go with them. And when the men tell him why they've come, that an angel appeared to their master and said that he needed to come get Peter... It hits Peter that the vision that he had just received goes well beyond just unclean animals. 
And it signifies unclean Gentiles have now been made clean. Because Peter explains on the following day in verse 28, when he arrives at the household of Cornelius, he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent me. So Peter gets right to the point. But he doesn't fully yet understand why Cornelius called for him. So Cornelius explains. It's because this angel told him that Peter had a message for him. Verse 33. So I sent for you immediately and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And this is when it fully hits Peter that this message that he received that the Gentiles are considered clean wasn't just for him. God gave this message to Peter so that Peter would share it with everybody else. And the same is true for us today. God doesn't give us truth merely so that our minds would increase, that we would grow great in understanding of our theology. God gives us truth and theology and doctrine so that we would share it with others. It's not just for us ourselves, but to share it so that all people would know this truth. Of course, this was always the case. This is why God in Deuteronomy 6 when he says, gives the greatest commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, he, he immediately follows us up saying, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It should characterize all of your life. You should share it with people. In fact, Psalm 145 says, One generation shall declare your mighty works to another nation. Not just to be individually loved and treasured and adored, but to be shared. And we need to share what we're learning, not just with our families, but with the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. So there needs to be this desire to want to not just learn, but then to go and share this learning. Now, one of the, the vestiges of medieval Roman Catholicism that even Reformed churches today have struggled to shake is the idea that we get some mystical benefit just to coming to church. The idea that if you simply show up, that, that just in being here, you're going to be infused with some sort of divine merit or you're going to be mystically helped in some way just by being in a building or being around other believers, receiving some sort of blessing that way, that you'll be automatically just changed or helped if you decide to show up. But that's not what Scripture would teach at all. Simply coming to church is not going to help you at all unless you're mentally engaged, unless you're seeking to understand, unless you're seeking to, to grasp what's being communicated. And this is why James exhorts us to, to not just be 
hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And in order to apply the Bible, we need to first understand what the Bible is saying. And this is, this is the purpose of expository preaching. I think the best example of this is actually in Nehemiah 8.8. 8. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. They gave the sense of what the law was saying, so that the people understood the reading. But the point is to, to understand, not just to hear, not just to be entertained, but to grasp the depth of what is being communicated so much so that you're able to then go explain it to others. You think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? The Ethiopian eunuch is trying to study Isaiah 53 until Philip shows up. He asks, do you understand what he's saying? He says, I I can't understand it unless somebody explains it to me. Someone guides me. And again, my main point is not just simply that we should come to seek to understand, but we should seek to understand so that we can then share with others. We should engage our minds in such a way that after hearing a sermon, we would feel confident enough to go and then explain that same chapter of Scripture to others. That should be our goal in every sermon that we listen to. Do you rightly understand what the passage is saying and can you explain it to another person? Effectively. The Sunday Men's Discipleship Group, we came a great, across a great example of what this could look like in just another Christian family. Uh, we, we're reading through the autobiography of John Payton, and he described his upbringing and his father's leadership of his family. Uh, he, he describes how his dad would uh, bring his, the, the, the kids to church. His mom couldn't come to church many times because she was an invalid. And unless they got a ride from a carriage, she had to stay at home. But the, the father and kids would take copious notes and they'd come home and try to explain the whole message together, each taking turns. I'll just read what he writes. He says, oh, I can remember those happy Sunday evenings. No blinds drawn and shutters up to keep out the sun from us, as some scandalously affirm. But a holy, happy, entirely human day for a Christian father and mother and children to spend. How my father would parade across and across our flag floor, telling over the substance of the day's sermons to our dear mother, who because of the great distance and because of her many living encumbrances, living encumbrances, got very seldom indeed to the church, but gladly embraced every chance when there was some prospect of a promise of a lift either way, from some friendly jig. How he would entice us to help him to recall some idea or other rewarding us when we got the length of taking notes and reading them over on our return. How we would turn the talk ever so naturally to some Bible story or some martyr reminiscence or some allusion to the pilgrim's progress. And then it was quite a contest which of us would get reading aloud while all the others listened. And Father added here and there a happy thought or illustration or anecdote. Others must write and say what they and as they will and as they feel, but so must I. There were 11 of us brought up in a home like that. And never one of the 11, boy or girl, man or woman, has ever been heard or ever will be heard saying that Sunday was dull or wearisome for us. Or suggesting that we have heard or seen any way more likely than that. For making the day of the Lord bright and blessed alike for parents and children. 
Like requiring their kids to take notes so that they could explain the sermon to their mom was not burdensome. They loved it. I mean, they loved it because they were engaged. They were learning. And there's a joy in being able to pass along what you're learning. But when we just take truth just simply for ourselves, there can be some delight. But, but we're actually, it's not nearly as delightful as being able to share it. So again, the goal of hearing a sermon is not simply to remember an illustration or even to remember the main point. In fact, the sermon isn't the point at all. The point of the sermon is to explain what the chapter or the text is saying. We need to seek to understand that. So my goal, Sunday by Sunday, is simply that I want you to be able to understand what the author is communicating and then to, to have some idea of how that should impact the way that you live. So a good sermon is not necessarily one that makes you cry or that moves you emotionally or that's funny. or It's one that enables you to explain what the text means. So again, if, I, if I've done a halfway decent job this morning, you should be able to explain what Acts 10 is about. And if all that you remember from uh, today's message is up on the housetop, I failed. Right, the goal is to understand the text. So that being said, let's move on to point four, which begins in verse 34, which is where the main point of the chapter is actually revealed. Peter reveals this shocking message to the Gentiles. What's so shocking about it? Well, the answer is the gospel. And in particular, the truth that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the kingdom. Peter makes this clear in verse 34. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, that's a challenging declaration on a number of fronts. One is... It's often misunderstood. What does it mean that anyone who fears God and does what is right is saved? Is welcome to him. Does this teaching works righteousness? No, is the answer. What it, what it says is that, that such a person is welcome to him, meaning that there's no longer any distinction between clean or unclean people, Jew and Gentile. It doesn't mean that a devout person is, is, is a person who can now be saved. Or that they're already saved. Because even the extraordinarily devout Cornelius still needs Peter to come to him to share with him the good news. Cornelius was really devout, but he was still unsaved. He still had not yet heard the gospel. Peter needed to come to him to proclaim the gospel. So he's not preaching works righteousness. He's preaching the free offer of salvation to all. Because now even Previously, unclean Gentiles have now been declared clean. But, but Peter goes on to explain how such a, a radical message could be true. How can that be true? If, if for centuries, Jews couldn't even come into contact with the Gentiles without becoming unclean. What changed? Peter explains this beginning in verse 38, and I'm just going to read it. Because it's one of the clearest and most comprehensive summaries of the gospel. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. 
God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And again, I just I don't feel capable of expressing how, again, shocking this would have been that a holy God, again, who could only remotely be approached through the shedding of sacrificial animals, shedding their blood on a holy altar, in the holy temple, and could only be approached by the holiest man in Israel one time a year. That 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 same holy God now personally indwells previously unclean Gentiles in the same way that he dwelt in the Holy of Holies. In the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you couldn't believe such a message unless God himself declared it to be the case. But it's true. And it's true because that magnifies how powerful the death of Christ actually was. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for thee. As Cooper wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. That blood is so powerful. It takes unclean people and makes them permanently holy. And that's the only thing that has the power to do that. And so now all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, can be called saints. Permanently holy ones because of the blood of Christ. And to verify that what Peter was saying was true, God proves it by directly pouring the Holy Spirit out upon these unclean Gentiles. The Holy Spirit, again, the same person who only could dwell in the Holy of Holies, and if anybody approached him unclean would be dead. Now he's dwelling in Gentiles. And he shows us because they they receive the same gifts that the apostles received at the day of Pentecost. They have the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter then says, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized, who received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay for a few days. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us Gentiles such access. Lord, we confess we actually we don't, we don't understand that, that we don't deserve. We don't even understand the nature of being a Gentile. And frankly, God, we know we're, we're often very presumptuous because we've received so much mercy. For thousands of years, you've been pouring out your mercy and grace upon unbelieving Gentiles across the world. And Lord, now we know that we can come directly to you and that you indwell us. We don't even grasp that. How rich that is. And how holy lives we should live in light of the fact that you indwell us. 
And so, Lord, just a simple request. Increase our understanding. Increase our awe of the power of the blood of Christ. And, 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 and the free mercy of salvation so that we in our joy would be compelled to tell these truths to others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm just going to... Uh,